Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. Thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It might seem like a minor thing, but it honestly makes a big difference. We recorded today's episode in Theo's restaurant at the Intercontinental in London, where they were preparing for a busy day's service. Theo is a legend in the food world, and I think there's a slight assumption that seriously successful people might not always be that nice. But if that is how the theory goes, Theo completely proved that wrong. He is genuinely one of the nicest people I've ever met. So prepare to get inspired and more than a little bit hungry. Here is today's episode. My guest today is Theo Randall. It's safe to say that Theo is one of the nation's most beloved chefs. Inspired by the food of his childhood trips to Italy, Theo has developed a lifelong passion for Italian food. He spent 17 years at the River Cafe and was head chef when they won their Michelin star. In 2006, he left to set up his own eponymous restaurant at the Intercontinental London to great critical acclaim. An online interview states, In a world full of swagger, quick tempers and massive egos, Chef Theo Randall is a breath of fresh air. Welcome, Theo. Thank you. Lovely introduction. (laughs) Let's talk a bit about that quote. It was from an interview back in 2008, but from everything I could find online, that sentiment was very much echoed everywhere. You don't strike me as the kind of chef or indeed man to get angry in the kitchen. No, definitely not. I mean, the thing about kitchens is they're, they're pretty difficult as it is, and uh, they're, hot, they're hot places. And I think, you know, you've got to be calm. I mean, there's times when you have to bark. Um, as long as you don't bite, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, if you bark and you, and you tell someone, you know, what they've done wrong at the end of the shift, then everything is, is fine. I mean, I never leave a, a shift unless I've explained to someone if they've done something wrong, mm-hmm. and I might raise my voice. But, you know, I don't very often because it's about a team building and making sure that they kind of... It's nurturing, really. I mean, you have a lot of young chefs come in the kitchen. We've taken on three chefs from Westminster College, and they're all, you know, that was a year ago, and they're all doing so well, and they've got such a good attitude. And I think that's just um, what you need in the kitchen, you know, a, a good a good team team effort, a good te- team spirit. And um, if you've got that, then there's a calm kitchen. And also having a good combination of boys and girls. We like to do 50-50, so I have, uh, it takes, brings down the testosterone levels. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, like, I like it because it, it just means that you have a much calmer and uh, more controlled kitchen. That's so interesting. And, and obviously now, and for a long time, you have been the big cheese, the, the boss, so I can't imagine that many people shout at you. Um, but as a young chef, did you ever experience any of those kind of things in the kitchen? Well, I've been very lucky to work with some lovely people. I mean, obviously, yeah. Rose and Ruth. <laughs> I mean, actually, Rose is pretty tough, actually, to be fair. And Ruthie, you know, as well. But um, there's always a, a very good environment in the kitchens I've worked in. And I think that's rubbed off on me as well. The first kitchen I worked with, with was a chef called Max McGarrin, a restaurant called Shea Max. And it was, it was hard work. It was just me and him in the kitchen. Oh, but really? The, it was just it's the just two of us in the kitchen. Oh, and wow. so I learned a huge amount very, very quickly. 
And I started there and as a commie chef. And, you know, he used to sort of give me a hard time. He used to push me a lot. And then after about a year, I kind of realized, you know, the things I need to do and be a bit more organized. And, and, and after a year, he sort of saw, saw that I was getting better and better. And so he stuck with me. And, you know, we, we, we got on very, very well. And it was, it was a, a nice environment, but it was tough. It was very tough. I mean, you know, that was when you were doing... A normal week was two days off, but you did five doubles a week and you started at eight in the morning and you finished at 12 at night. And there was probably a break for half an hour, an hour, if you're lucky. If you're lucky, yeah. (laughs) But but, um, he was very fair and he explained everything. And he was a very good teacher. And I learned so much about preparation of meat and fish and, and, you know, the the kind of the classic French kitchen, which is what um, Shane Max was. Yeah. Um, but he always said one thing, he said, what goes around comes around. And, you know, he was right at the time, there was all the nouvelle cuisine and everything was all sort of being quite sort of fancy in tiny portions. But he wanted to do sort of proper, you know, real classic French cuisine. And I think that's still been a good set when I went to River Cafe because I had this very, very good uh, early training. Definitely. Those are very wise words. You were born in Kingston and grew up in an artistic household. Your father was an architect and your mother an artist. I know yours was a food-loving family, so let's jump straight to the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, there's so many. The one thing that I always remember my mother making is uh, this beef stew. And um, we used to go, my father um, has got a a house in Wiltshire, and he designed this beautiful house um, on this hill. And we used to go for these walks on the Salisbury Plain. And my mother, before we'd go, she'd put the, um, the beef casserole in the, in the oven. And it was a very simple affair. It was a bit like sort of her version of a boeuf bourguignon. And she used chuck steak and onions and um, pancetta or bacon and mushrooms and tomato and loads of red wine. And she used to put it in the oven and it would cook for about four hours. Yum. And she'd also put at the bottom of the oven these baked potatoes where she'd put a skewer through and then she'd put a slice of bay, bay leaf in the potato and cooked them on a bed of sea salt. So they were in the bottom of the oven cooking slowly. And this was before fan-assisted ovens. And so we'll come back from this walk, which was always wonderful. It was great fun. We'd take the dog and we'd go to sort of It was exhausting. I mean, it was a long walk. Yeah. Probably a good sort of 10-mile hike. (laughs) And then when we get back, we'd all be absolutely starving. And I remember, you know, that that, um, memory of sitting around the table and uh, my mother putting the beef stew in the middle of the table and serving us and how we're having a baked potato each. And the first thing we got was the baked potato and we'd cut it in half. And me and my sisters would um, try and put as much butter on this potato as possible. Of course. Of course and then sort of <laughs> mash it in. At which point my mum would say, stop playing with your food. And then I, I remember the, the, the thing that really got me was putting the black pepper on top of the butter. And Ooh. then the beef stew was put on the plate. And there was probably something else for some broccoli or something. Um, but it, it was the beef stew and the juice being mashed into that potato and the crispy skin on the outside with the slightly saltiness was oh amazing. Goodness. It's very early in the morning still, but yeah, <laughs> I could definitely eat that right now. Your mum, she sounds like a fantastic cook. You say that um, she taught you to cook pasta and sent you to school with homemade bread and fruit from your garden. I mean, everyone else's lunchboxes must have paled in comparison. Well, I was the weird kid that had the homemade bread with a gorgonzola in the middle of it. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone thought I was really odd. And uh, they would all have mother's pride bread with, uh, you know, um, the ham and cheese. And, and I used to feel a bit embarrassed. I'd go around the corner to the, on the way to school and buy a packet of crisps oh, no. because I had, <laughs> I had this very healthy uh, lunchbox. But she taught you how to make pasta. She taught me how to cook pasta. I mean, I think making pasta is a, was a different thing that came okay. later on. But she taught me how to cook uh, spaghetti and okay. all those dry pastas. And, and I remember she, we sort of had this, um, she, had this, she has got an amazing collection of cookbooks. And one thing, one cookbook that she was um, used to, use was elizabeth davis italian food which we sort of 
kind of grew up on, on, on her experiments. And, you know, it wasn't a lot of the food she got, it wasn't necessarily authentic Italian, but it was definitely Italian-inspired. And she had this love of Italy. And she loved, uh, when we used to go on these holidays, we used to go to these amazing um, museums and, and, and places, which I found really boring, but yeah. I'm very grateful for it now. <laughs> but uh, at the end of it, there'd always be like a, some food at the end. There'd be a nice meal. It's always a nice meal at the end That's of something like reward. that. That's the reward. And so having that was always a, a, tr- a treat. Oh, she must be so proud of what you're doing um, now. They were, they were, they were really, they really, um, they were, so pleased that I wanted to be a chef because and they were very supportive which is nice and you you it was such an artistic family and aside from cooking you enjoyed metalwork and sculpture and photography but you got your first cooking job as a kitchen porter at the age of 14 what was it about cooking that that ultimately led to it winning out over those other interests oh well it was it was the um I remember it was a restaurant in uh, East Molesley called Stars Bistro and a friend of mine had been working there and he couldn't work on a Thursday night. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll do it, you know, a bit of extra pocket money. And I went into this kitchen. There was two sinks and there was this sort of mad kitchen. This place was packed the whole time. It was a very busy French bistro. And the chef was Spanish, Jose. And I remember just loving this kitchen and thinking, oh my God, this is my home. I love the, I love the banter between the front of house and the, and the, and the kitchen and the chef sort of quite liked me. And he was sort of giving me little tasters of things to eat. And uh, I kind of was there for, you know, for, for a few, a few, few months. And then they promoted me to the next, their other restaurant on a Sunday. Cause uh, you know, I said, I can work on Sundays. And I sort of started washing dishes there and then they put me in, in, in to be second chef and I started doing all the kind of cold salads and garnishes. That's amazing. And I, and I was, I mean, I was probably about 15 yeah, then, but I just loved it and I thought this is, this is great. And I carried on doing that and went to college and various things, but I thought this is what I want to do actually. I really, I really enjoy this. All the other, my other sort of hobbies were I was sort of still doing, but the, this was something that I just absolutely loved and cooked more and more at home and was more experimental and started reading cookbooks. And I just kind of sort of knew this was sort of what I wanted to do from a very early age. Let's pause there and talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Well, the first dish I learned to cook was probably a peppermint cream at school. Oh, I remember them. <laughs> but, uh, but I think the first dish I, I really remembered uh, cooking was probably, I remember, I remember always making toasted sandwiches and we had we bought we had a we had a breville toasting sandwich thing and i remember getting very very excited about that and making coming up with all these different sort of combinations but as far as sort of proper recipe i think it's probably my my it was probably baking actually a cake and my mother one of my favorite cakes in the world is a dundee cake Ooh. my mother's my mother's scottish and she used to always make this cake, which was called a coming home from school cake. So instead of buying lots of chocolate biscuits and things, we'd always have a cake that she'd make on a Sunday evening. By about Tuesday, it was gone. You know, it was supposed to last, it last a few days. Your mum sounds like the dream. No, she's, my mum's amazing. <laughs> and so I kind of, I, I, I love this cake so much. So she used to sort of teach me how to make this cake. So and what goes into it? It's you? basically, a, it's, a, it's a fruit cake. So okay. it's, 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 you know, it's a, a, a normal cream base, um, not cream base, yeah, sugar and, and butter. And then lots and lots of fruit, uh, raisins and some candy peel. And then flour and, and, and so, so, so forth and some nuts and almonds. And we'd cook this cake for, just take forever to cook, but it was the most amazing thing. So I think there's probably that and scones are probably my, my first things I ever really cooked properly. Sounds so good. Yeah. That's also talking about peppermint creams. Do people still make them? I don't know, but I remember at school making them and I was like kind of like 
10 or something. Yeah, it's, like, it's this, kind of like making and taking, and taking them home with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Being so proud of them. Um, so it was a chance meeting on your 18th birthday with the owner of Shea Max, Max Magarian, that led to you getting your, your first pro- proper job as a kitchen apprentice with him. Can you tell us a bit more about how that came about? Well, it was my parents' favorite restaurant. It's where we would go as a family for our special, special um, occasions. And I thought, I've got to, I've got to speak to him. You know, I've got it. I always have this theory, if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. And he sort of came around the tables and said hello to people at the end. And I said, you know, I, I really would like to be a chef. Can, you know, can I come and work in your restaurant? That's so great. I know, I know, I know. Um, and he sort of looked at me and said, well, I can put you on the floor as a waiter, you know, polishing glasses and that. And, you know, I have someone who's been in my kitchen now for three years. So I don't actually need anyone in the kitchen. Anyway, so I, I sort of turned up and it was always Friday, Saturday nights. Like, oh God, the only time yeah. you like, might go out with your mates was Friday. <laughs> always Saturday. the way. I thought, you know what? No, I want to do this. So I can do it properly. So I would go there and, and, and get there at sort of five o'clock on a Friday evening and, a, and the same on the Saturday. Turning up and sort of polishing glasses. I was probably the worst way. I think I broke more glasses than, <laughs> than I had these beautiful, like lovely crystal glasses. Oh God, they're terrifying. And, 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 and I was always, always breaking a few. Uh, which was, was, was that slightly tactical, Theo? Uh, I think <laughs> in, in hindsight, yes. Um, and this was the point where people were, you know, allowed to smoke in, in restaurants. And I remember going up to one table and putting the ashtray, because there was a, a trick to do it. You'd put the ashtray on top of the old one. You'd remove the old one and then put the fresh ashtray down and take the dirty ashtray away oh, no. i kind of got it slightly wrong oh, so no. i put the dirt the clean ashtray on top emptied out the the ashes <laughs> into the clean ashtray and put the dirty ashtray back on the table and walked off nice. i think at which point he was like oh my god what am i gonna do but anyway um <laughs> luckily for me his sort of apprentice uh, had um handed a notice in she was gonna leave so he said look you know you you can start in the month's time and i was like Oh my God, this is incredible. And that's, that's how I started. And, and, you know, I, I, the first day, the thing is, I had some knowledge of cooking. So I kind of, I felt, you know, okay. And he, I just went straight into a professional chef's job. I mean, literally, I was doing all the garnishes. I mean, I'd have and to stay behind to catch up. I mean, I, I, I would have to do all, all these, all these garnishes. And then I have to do all the stocks, have to, you know, skim the stocks. And this is when there was the days of copper pans. Oh, I had yeah. to, on Saturday mornings, when the restaurant was closed, we'd do all the prep for the Saturday night, which is always the busiest shift. And then we'd have to, I'd have to polish the, the copper pans. And I used to use salt and lemon juice and we'd clean these copper pans. At the end of it, you're like, my God, you know, I sort of, it, it was great. It was, if you really felt like an achievement, Saturday night at the end, it was like, great, you know, I've sort of done that. Now I'd be off for two days. So it, it was good. And I just got into that, you know, that, that sort of cycle of, of working very, very hard and, and then having these sort of two days off, which was really lovely. And I just did it. I did that for almost four years. And so I really felt like I'd had a really good training. Really good training. And I love how that came about as sort of like serendipity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And being brave by asking for a job in the first place. If you don't ask, you don't get No, that's very true. Well, out of interest, what do you think you would be doing if you weren't? I don't know. Special? I mean, I, I, there's always an artistic side to me. And I kind of always loved, I always loved that sort of creative side. I, I think, funny enough, I always sort of quite like the kind of idea of advertising for some weird okay. reason. I like, I like the kind of uh, marketing, you know, kind of in a creative way, coming up yeah. with great ideas or, or look, slogans and things like yeah. that. And me and my daughter, we always, we're always coming up with ideas for products. It's just for a laugh. <laughs> I don't really know, actually. I don't know. I think I it would think probably, probably be something creative. Definitely. Definitely. We're on to the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Well, I... <sighs> I mean, there's so many, but there's one that really stands out that 
I, I remember going there years ago. Sadly, the restaurant's closed down now, but it was in a place called Vesoulet and the, in France. And the chef was, the restaurant was called Marc Minot. And they're very famous for this dish, which is Atlantic turbot. And I love fish. And this dish was, I read all about it before I went. And it's basically an Atlantic turbot cooked in a salt and pastry crust. So like a, a salt crust. And they cook the turbot in this salt crust on lobster shells. And then it's served at the table. We ordered this dish. It cost an absolute fortune, but I was no way was I not going to have this dish. No, I course. had to have it. <laughs> and we had the starters and everything, and they were okay. But this dish turned up, and I was getting slightly worried, thinking the food's nice, but you know, it's 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 you know, interesting. And the, this trolley came up with these two sort of waiters beaming smiles, and this what looked like a sort of, a little sort of leather briefcase on this on this um, like chopping board and they got these sort of scissors and it's quite a fancy place it was two michelin star and they got these scissors and they cut around the uh this sort of casing and opened up and as they opened up this enormous amount of steam came out and you saw this an absolutely gigantic piece of turbot like almost probably two kilos it was that or maybe one and a half kilos but it was enormous it was so thick and all you could smell was this amazing scent of the fish and the sh- and lobsters. You could see the two heads of lobsters that this fish was sitting on. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, they pil- picked up this, this enormous piece of fish and pop- popped it on the chopping board. And they peeled and, and they did it absolutely beautifully. I mean, they were like a surgeon. And they peeled back the skin and they got this spoon and a fork and they put these great huge lobes of steam, steaming turbot onto the plate. And they served it with steamed turnips. And they made a lobster butter from the coral of the lobster and poured this on top of the oh. turbot. I mean, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever eaten. And it was so simple. I mean, literally, it's just two ingredients, yeah. butter, butter. But the flavor, and you could really taste the, uh, the turbot. And the, the, the turnip was just a revelation. It works so well with the fish. <gasps> I can't remember any, any other part of the meal, but that was absolutely brilliant. And there was the whole... I think it was the, the whole presentation of it when yeah, it comes to the, the table. It's so, so exciting. Yeah, so exciting. Oh, God, that sounds incredible. But there's been many more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was hard making you pick just one. You ended up at the River Cafe. You, make, you made the transition to Italian cooking and you were there for 17 years. During that time, you spent a year working at Chez Panisse in California with Alice Waters. What was that like? It wasn't quite a year, but oh. it was it was uh, it was an amazing experience. And was it like a almost like an internship? Pretty much. I mean, it was it was a bit of a sabbatical for me because I wanted I've been at the River Cafe for a couple of years, and I I kept reading these Shapinese books. I mean, the River Cafe had this wonderful cupboard, and we'd open the cupboard, and there'd be all these cookbooks. And I remember looking at the Shapinese cookbook and thinking, God, I'd really like to go there. And the recipes were really interesting, and it was very sort of seasonal food. And I, and I heard lots of people that had sort of been there and talked about the restaurants. I thought, you know, I'd really love to go there. And so I just wrote, I wrote them a letter and actually I, I said, we faxed it. And, and funny <laughs> enough, luckily for me, one of Alice's friends had been to the River Cafe uh, the week before. And so she said, she was just chatting to this friend saying, Oh, I got this fax from the chef, you know, at the River Cafe. And she's, Oh my God, he's, there's an amazing restaurant. You've, you know, got to bring me over. So I got this, this, um, letter back saying, you know, when can you come over? So I went over there and it was one of the most brilliant places to go because it'd been established for over 20 years then and, and it had this fantastic reputation. And they did this brilliant thing where they'd on Monday, they'd have a, a menu which they'd uh, published uh, the week before and there would be a, um, you know, three or four dishes on like a Monday and then they sort of got bigger, and, the menu got bigger and bigger until about Saturday when it had about five or six. 
and um, it, they all had different prices, but you'd have to pre-book. Anyway, when I first got there, I was asked to cook some dishes that I'd that learned at the River Cafe. Okay. So I did one of the dishes was a gnocchi, and it was a, a, a gnocchi fiorentina. Anyway, it was all going very, very well. Oh, and, <laughs> and you know what's going to happen. And um, we were packed on the Monday night. And there was like, uh, you do two sittings, one at six and one at 8.30. And we had uh, 50 or 60 people in the, in the, the, the first sitting and, and same in the, in the um, later sitting. Anyway, everyone was having their staff meal. It was probably the best staff meal you've ever seen in your life. I mean, there'd be wine served. And we'd sit in this kitchen on this butcher's block and have this amazing food at about sort of about seven, after we've done the main course on the first sitting. Anyway, I wasn't sitting down because I realized I'd just been counting that I didn't have enough gnocchi for the, the second sitting by about 20 portions. Oh, my goodness. And the, the, um, there was no spinach in the fridge. And the only thing there was ricotta, thankfully. So I ran across the road to like, the, <laughs> the supermarket, which was a very good supermarket in, in Berkeley, I have to say. And I bought about, I don't know, five kilos of spinach. And we all just they realized that I was not, <laughs> not in a good state. So they... We blanched the spinach and we made this, this gnocchi. And I literally was quenelling this gnocchi as the people were coming in. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so stressful. I went at, at the end of it, I was like, you know, like the, the only person in history to sort of not have enough food in the, in a, in a, in the meal at the, the Chez Panisse. Anyway. Who is this British chef? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it all worked out in the end. Alice Waters and indeed Ruth Rogers of the River Cafe and Rose Gray have been so instrumental in so many amazing chefs' careers. What was it that you learned from each of those women that you think has made a real difference to the way that you cook or indeed eat? I think they, well, they're all incredibly passionate. They all uh, um, share a passion for food, but also a passion for life as well. It's about making people feel good about themselves. And I think that's what's been so brilliant. I mean, working with Rose and Ruthie, uh, you know, is, was an, an incredible experience because we were all quite young when we first started at the River Cafe. And um, we kind of grew up there. And, you know, working in an environment where it was all about food and it was all about preparing dishes and it was all new every day. And there's always something exciting around the corner. And just, just their sort of love of life was, was really infectious. And I think that that's what's been really great about them. Very intelligent people. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 they're uh, politically involved. They have uh, really good ideas about, you know, what people should um, be doing. And, and, and they nurture people as well. So yeah. a little bit of advice from them was always went a long way. Yeah, and they, yeah, their approach is such an exciting way of cooking, isn't it? And sort of thinking about food. Well, if you think about the River Cafe, I mean, the fact that they weren't proper trained chefs was yeah. the reason why it was so, such a success. Yeah, because so they, cool. they were, you know, thinking in a different way to every other restaurant. And every other restaurant, I was like, ha, what's this River Cafe? You know, it's not going to do anything. But actually, you know, when you were, turned up at the River Cafe and you saw this open kitchen and the food was being cooked, it was so way ahead of its time. I mean, wow, it was, it was miles ahead of its time. And it took quite a while, I think, for people to really kind of take it on and think, well, actually, you know what? They're, what they're doing is absolutely how it should be. And it's all about, you know, the, the sourcing of ingredients and, you know, having this daily changing menu and, and, and just very, very exciting food. Yeah. And a lot of it was uh, the food when I first went there, the food in Italian food in London was completely different to what it is now. And the food the River Cafe was serving was just, just totally... Uh, different and and uh, you know the, all these amazing dishes all this amazing fish it would come in and we'd sort of the ingredients came in then you wrote the menu and that's what was so exciting about yeah, it so exciting and so you came back from america and then became head chef at the river cafe yeah so when i was when i was at uh when i when i went to river cafe originally i was still sort of like rose and ruth's in the sort of number two in lots of ways so I, my position didn't really ever change but 
Uh, what was nice is when I was there, Ruthie called me up and said, you know, will you come back when you come back? And um, she said, we'll make you a partner and head chef for River Cafe, which was like, you know, amazing. And so That's I... so cool. Yeah, I know. And I, I came back and I, was, and I was just like so inspired by my trips to um, Chez Panisse. And, and Rose was like, you know, really kind of like, like push on and, you know, really kind of drive the restaurant. And we, yeah. all, we all followed suit. And you did. You got the Michelin star. The, in, yeah, 2096. Uh, yeah, yeah. So cool. No, amazing, amazing. But the River Cafe grew, grew early on from about... 93 and the the we extended the river cafe and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and i think that's when you know you got all these chefs coming through it was like jamie turned up yeah (laughs) you know so there were some great people coming through the the ranks but the river cafe really sort of came of age about that time which was which was so lovely to see we're on to possibly the most important question of the day it's the fourth desert island dish theo randall what is your favorite sandwich oh my god um, you know what? It's actually quite simple. Well, actually, isn't that simple? Thing, but, <laughs> you know what? I love, I love a French baguette. But when I say French baguette, a proper French baguette. You know, one of those really light ones. They're very crispy on the outside. The bread inside is quite is quite soft. Yeah. But I also love a really good piece of sourdough bread that's just been baked. So it's quite soft. Mm. But either either or, it would be lots of unsalted butter. I mean, really, plenty of it. Yeah. Some lovely ham that's been cooked, but properly, properly cooked, like a proper ham, really thick slices. A good amount of Coleman's mustard. It has to be Coleman's. It can't be any other kind yeah. of it. It has to be English Coleman's mustard. And maybe a slice or two of, of gherkin or, or, you know, cornichon. And that's probably my favorite sandwich. And, you know, just eat. And with the, with the, with the baguette, you know, it just sort of collapses when you sort of squeeze it. It's yep. sort of uh, a lovely thing. That sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> so you ultimately left the River Cafe, I think it was in 2006, to set up your own restaurant where we sit today in the inter- intercontinental London. That must have been obviously very exciting, but also a really scary thing to do. Was it one of those things where you felt completely ready to move on and start the next challenge or were you pushing yourself out of your comfort zone? I'd been sort of thinking about being the River Cafe for so long and, you know, even though I had shares in the restaurant and, you know, I had all these lovely things, I'd been there for a long, long time. I just thought this is not my restaurant and I need to do something myself. And I've been looking at various sites and um, out of the blue, this sort of came up. I mean, I've been looking at a site in Baker Street um, and then one of the investors pulled out last minute and I thought, you know what? This, I'm going to see this site here. And I turned up and I met this guy. I said, I recognize you. And he said, yeah, I've been, we've been stalking you at the River Cafe. Oh. They've been coming for like, sort of the, like the last few months. And, <laughs> and he, was the, uh, he was in charge of the, the hotel here. He was in charge of the project of this, this new refurbishment. And he said, we'd really be interested if you did a restaurant here. You know, we've got this space. Would you come and see it? So I went and saw it and thought, and it was, hadn't been touched for 25 years. It was like a, it was like a museum. And they said, you know, we're going to uh, refurbish it. Uh, you can do what you want. This, you know, your kitchen, it's your restaurant, the name above the door. And I was thinking, you know, hang on a minute. This is Park Lane. Yeah. My name above the door. I always said to myself, I don't want to leave River, River Cafe unless I do something really fantastic. Yeah. It can't just be, you know, something tiny or whatever. It has to be something really brilliant. And and the opportunity came, came up and so I took it. And within, it took quite a while because the, the whole um, building was refurbished and we opened in November 2006 
Um, but within a year, we were Italian Restaurant of the Year, which was which was just like you know, I mean, it was a dream come true, absolutely yeah. brilliant. And and everyone, all the team, were just like so excited. But we'd, we'd all worked so hard. I mean, that first eighteen months was just relentless. But it was you know, we'd we'd, we'd got to um, got to a stage, and then we had to keep working. You know, it's it's the thing about restaurants is they're very organic. You have to you have to keep pushing, yeah. pushing. Was it a steep learning curve going from being head chef and obviously being very involved in the sort of run? of the river cafe but then to go to sort of head chef and business owner was that yeah it was quite different because i mean i always had rose and ruth in the back in the background yeah and uh there was there was that very much a comfort zone there and then being sort of pushed out to the front and say right you deal with it and then all the kind of also all the publicity as well so because so you know we got a lot, lot of publicity straight away and i've done quite a lot of stuff with rose and ruth anyway we did a t- we did a couple of pro- um tv series on channel four so i kind of was I was okay with it. I had no problem with it and actually enjoyed it. But it was that whole kind of, you know, you just felt you had the weight on your shoulders and, uh, you know, you, you felt very, I felt very responsible. Mm, I felt, you know, I had a lot of responsibility for a lot of people that were working with me and I had to make sure that, you know, the restaurant was a success because I had to make sure their livelihoods were protected. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, um, it is, a, it's a different thing altogether and it kind of, sort of changes you it sort of drives you it's a bit like having children you yeah. suddenly become a different person and it was like having a third child actually yeah that's so interesting the fifth desert island dish what's the dish that you eat the most often well it's got to be pasta yeah, i mean <laughs> there's no there's no other thing what's your go-to oh i've got so many but i mean pasta is just one of the most wonderful things do you always make your own pasta like at home um not always no i mean i do my son loves pasta like i do and the pasta that we always kind of make together, it's quite, I mean, it's quite, it's quite simple. It's something you can just sort of put together is pacchieri, which is this, like, a bit like a rigatoni, but bigger. Oh, yeah. And it's smooth on the outside. You can get, you can get it with um, little grooves on it. But it's the most wonderful pasta to do, uh, like a fish pasta. So I usually do some, maybe some prawns, just buy some, you know, uh, frozen prawns and I just chop them up. And I get some little datterini tomatoes and I get some zucchini. And the, the recipe is really simple. You put the pasta in. The pasta takes about 20 minutes to cook. So it's okay. very, very thick. And we put that in. And then I get a big pan and I add tomato, put some olive oil and some of these datterini tomatoes, which are so sweet. Good handful of them. One clove of garlic, very thinly sliced. And I just sort of melt the tomatoes. I don't fry them. I melt them. And then when the pasta is almost ready, I add the... Um, I add the zucchini to the pasta, add the prawns to the tomatoes, and then I add some fresh chopped parsley. And then I take the um, pacchieri and the zucchini and add it to the, the pan with the prawns and the tomato. And then I get a ladle of the pasta water and loads more olive oil. And then I toss it all together. So all of the uh, ingredients start to emulsify. And you get these little sort of pockets, like little sleeping bags, full of all the juices from the prawns and the tomatoes and the parsley. And it's absolutely delicious. And my son will eat kind of three plates of it. But I mean, I, it's... I don't it's, blame him. It's always, it, it's, always a, it's always a great one at home when we, we, we do that one. I love, the, I love the sound of the melting tomato. Yeah. And pasta as sleeping bags. That's like my, my dream. <laughs> Despite your obvious expertise, in Italian food and Italian cooking, you still go to Italy five or six times a year, don't you, to sort of research and how important is that process to you? Well, it's extremely important because whenever I go to Italy, I always get inspired by something. And, you know, whether it's an ingredient, whether it's a person or whether it's a supplier, you know, you always get inspired by something. And it's really important to keep your 
because it kind of make, makes you realize you're doing the right thing. You yeah. know, when you go there, you think, you know what? I am doing the right thing. I am cooking that dish the right way. And we always have family holidays in Puya, and that's always like just such a joy. I spend the whole time cooking. I know it sounds bonkers, but you know, I'll get up in the morning and I'll go down to the, the, the place where they make the burrata and I'll get the burrata before 10 o'clock because that's the only way you can do it. <laughs> And then I'll go to the fish shop in this town called Ostuni and, you know, I'll get all the, it sounds like a perfect life, but it is actually. And then I get all the ingredients and then I take them home. We have this sort of really kind of quite large lunch and then, you know, fall asleep, read a book and then start again in the evening or we probably go out in the evening. But, you know, it's, it's, it, going to Italy is very inspiring and, you know, I, I, we buy oil, oil from Puya as well. And I love to go for little trips, weekend trips, um, to eat in restaurants. I mean, I, you know, recently went to Turin, which was amazing. I mean, such a great city. Bologna is always wonderful. Florida, all the, you know, the classic places, but there's so many great cities that are sort of undiscovered. And they have a bit of everything. They have the beautiful architecture. They have the, the, uh, the great food. And it's just so easy to get to these days. That's so nice to hear that even on your holiday, like that, that is, you know, you're living the life that you want to live in your day to day. You've made that your day to day life, even though that is what you would choose to do anyway. Well, it's kind of it, it, cooking. It's, it's a vocation. So, you know, when I'm in the restaurant and uh, doing various things, you know, you're always kind of focusing on the quality and making sure everything goes out yeah. making sure it's you know all, you've got the right margins on things and making sure the customers are all happy but actually when you when you're when you're cooking uh, on holiday it's the best feeling because you yeah. really can you can experiment and you can you know look at cooking things different ways and that's where a lot of inspiration comes from so that's why i go to italy it's for it's for the inspiration that's so cool the sixth desert island go-to dinner party dish Go to dinner party. Do you, do you get to throw many dinner parties? Yeah, no, I, I do. Um, I do. I mean, it tends to be something that I always like to serve things at the table. Yeah. And um, I do, it depends what time of year, really. Yeah. I mean, if it was sort of kind of uh, all, um, springtime, I'd probably do uh, a dish, which we do in the restaurant, actually, which is um, slow-cooked shoulder of lamb. So I get spring lamb. And we use garlic, anchovies, olives, rosemary, and white wine. Cook it for about four hours. You take it off the bone and cook it really slowly. And then that time of year, you can make the most delicious um, artichokes, peas, broad beans. And, and it's just with that, it's fantastic. But uh, in the summer, I'll probably cook a whole fish in salt and then maybe have some grilled vegetables. There'd probably be a pasta course somewhere along the line. I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes for me, it. it when we have a lot of people over, I just usually get um, some, um, you know, large pieces of beef and we'll grill the beef and I'll just put lots of sort of uh, tomatoes, salads and, and lentils and things like that and put it in the middle of the table. A big bowl of something like salsa verde, just let people help themselves. I think, I think sometimes, you know, when you get kind of too fussy with food yeah. and you plate everything and you make it all look nice and you're sort of wiping all the plates, it's far better to have, you know, 10 people on a table and give them all a plate and then just put some things when they sit down like the antipasti on the table maybe give them uh, you know some pasta and then at the end you know it's the perfect italian meal it's the antipasti the pasta and the, and the secondi you know that you've got the the vegetables and the, to start with and then you have the carbohydrate and then you have the protein um but for me it's should be displayed on the table because it just looks so much nicer if you put a whole fish on the table and serve it from there it just looks beautiful yeah you must literally have people knocking down your door to come to your dinner parties. Well, when, when we're in Puglia, we get a lot of phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just happened to be passing by. <laughs> 
And I heard a rumor that you, you've cooked for Elizabeth David. Wow. Which yeah. is amazing. Can you tell us? where and when and what did you make her well it was river cafe and it must have been very early on it must have been about 91 and she came with simon hopkinson okay. for lunch he brought her for, for lunch and uh we had a dish on the, the menu which is called elizabeth davis pressed chocolate cake which is a, a lovely um sort of chocolate souffle when you make the cake, when it's hot, you put plates on top of it with a piece of greasefree paper and basically it pushes it down. So you get this perfect crust on the outside and then you get this very squidgy sort of soft middle. It's a brilliant cake Yum. and you should look it up and cook it. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, she was, she, was pretty, she was pretty with it still and she said something on the lines of, well, I wouldn't use plates. I'd use my, my uh, pan to do that. Oh. <laughs> but um, she, she was very, uh, I remember Rose going up to the table and we were all kind of young chefs sort of looking behind the counter but it was it was you know so when I look back I think wow you know there's I cooked for some great people but yeah. she really was that was a, a, a brilliant person to cook career for. highlight for sure yeah. was it actually written on the menu Elizabeth David's chocolate it was and she ordered that presumably and <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a cookbook hall of fame on desert island dishes what's the one book that you would want to put into that collection Venus in the Kitchen by Norman Douglas now that's a book written in the fifties by a chap called Norman Douglas. My mother gave it to me when I was about fourteen, and she got me an original copy, <gasps> of, um, a first edition. And it's a brilliant book um, by someone who basically taught Elizabeth David how to cook. Wow. He was he inspired her to cook, and he was a uh, um, he lived in the island of Capri. Oh, and him. yeah, you know, he, he was a very flamboyant character. <laughs> uh, he had a lot of amazing meals, and Venus in the kitchen basically means that all the dishes were aphrodisiacs. Okay, so it has a has a great. There's some interesting <laughs> connotations to that, but the recipes are really quite amazing. When you read the book, I mean, some of the things they're, they're very extravagant. And there's one recipe I think where they you kind of bake these black truffles in a in a, in a fire, you know, and you wrap them in. Uh, in fat and you use the truffles to make a sort i mean it's I mean, quite amazing perfect midnight mid yeah midnight feast yeah, yeah yeah but there were some really interesting things in there it's a great book and uh, i'd highly recommend buying it um yeah. just 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 to look at some of the i'm gonna have to go and pick up a copy this afternoon we're on to the final desert island dish and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island well i thought about this a lot and uh, it would probably it wouldn't be a last dish it'd be quite a few dishes absolutely okay. yeah well it would start off with some steamed Scottish langoustine. Uh, and I'd eat that just with some really delicious Salvapiana olive oil, which is the uh, Tuscan oil, which is amazing. Or, or Capizzana, don't mind either. Then I would have tagliarini with butter and white truffles. Ooh. I know that sounds really extravagant, but it's yeah, one of those things that... Yeah, I know, but it's one of those things that when you eat it, you know, it's such an amazing, it's all about the aroma. It's not so much the taste, it's about the aroma. It's about the truffles being sliced on your plate. And the perfect medium for truffle is pasta, buttery hot pasta with white truffle is, is amazing. Then I'd have a Scottish grouse. The grouse would be cooked on some panotta bread, so semolina-based bread. And I would um, want pan-fried porcini, cut at least a centimetre thick, cooked quite slowly with garlic and parsley, and then put on top of the bruschetta and the roasted with the grouse and then serve with a nice bowl of watercress and some of the juices from the, the grouse uh, and rare, possibly a little bit more than rare, but it has to be rare. Okay. And then I would have some gorgonzola naturale 
which is the, the harder gorgonzola. And I'd have that with the Cox's orange pippin from my parents' garden Ooh. with a slice of my mother's homemade bread. Aww. And then I would finish off on the, on the, t- on the terrace outside with a big bowl of ice cold cherries Ooh. and I'd spit the pips out desperate dance style my goodness that literally sounds like the dream what an amazing an amazing final meal Theo Randall those were your desert island dishes thank you so much thank you <laughs> so there we are another delicious day of desert island dishes and I could not be more jealous of the people who get to go to Theo's dinner parties they sound like heaven on earth Come and have a look at the Desert Island Dishes website. Exciting things are going to start happening and there are loads of recipes, including, of course, a delicious pasta recipe inspired by Theo. I mean, it couldn't really be anything else. And other than that, thank you for listening. Tell all your friends and come and find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura. Bye.